This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Bible turn to Romans chapter 4. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Romans for um, the last uh, year or so, um, and we uh, find ourselves in uh, chapter 4 here today. Uh, we're going to start in verse number 1 and read through verse number 12. We're really going to spend the bulk of our time, uh, verses 9 through 12. We come back to the idea, again, of circumcision, which we spent a lot of time on circumcision when we were in uh, uh, chapter 2 of, uh, of Romans here. This idea of the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision, we're going to see all throughout the book of Romans. So uh, get comfortable with this idea idea and the concept behind it, uh, because it's going to bear fruit in the future as well. Uh, the, the question that we have today was, so when exactly was Abraham justified? And we'll take a look at that uh, this morning. Romans chapter 4, we're going to start in verse number 1 and read through verse number 12. Flesh hath found, for if Abraham were justified, just a second, important that we define terms, justified means having your sins forgiven and being declared righteous. Uh, for you and I, in New Testament vernacular, the way that Jesus would describe it and Paul describes it here in Romans, it's called being born again or being saved. You put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior. All of your sin that you've committed your entire life is wiped out, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are declared righteous before God. That's what the word justified means. So, uh, verse number three, what saith the scriptures? Now, to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We've covered all this, so this is just review. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then on the circumcision only, or the uncircumcision also, for we have we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. So Abraham was declared righteous according to verse number 9. How then was it reckoned? How was he declared righteous? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. We're going to unpack this in just a minute. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might also be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. A lot of uh, circumcision, uncircumcision, talk about that. And, and again, you've got to really be really deliberate in following that. But we're going to unpack all of it. It's going to make perfect sense for you uh, by the time that we're done today. Now, important to note for you and I that the, the Bible's really divided up into two main portions, the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, there's a, usually a white page dividing those two sections of your Bible. That white page represents 400 years uh, where God was not openly revealing himself to, to man. Uh, so 400 silent years we usually refer to that separate the Old Testament and New Testament. A lot of people don't know this, and so uh, if you know this, you will automatically be smarter than everybody else. The Old Testament literally means Old Covenant. The word testament can be used synonymously with the word covenant. New Testament is the New Covenant. 
And so the Old Testament is dealing with the Old Covenant, New Testament dealing with the New Covenant. Now the New Covenant says this, all of us have sinned against a holy God. All of us have broken God's law. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. Because we've broken God's law, there's coming a day of judgment where every single one of us will be judged according to our sins. The consequences, the punishment of our sin, the Bible says, is hell. Hell's a real place that burns with real fire. There's no second chances. There's no getting out. That's what I deserve, and that's what you deserve, because we've broken God's law. Now, God doesn't want to send you to hell. The Bible says God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Uh, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, God made a way for you to avoid punishment and actually be forgiven of your sin and go to heaven, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came, he suffered, he bled, he died on the cross to pay for my sin and pay for yours, to establish a new agreement, a new covenant with God, that anyone that would come to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus alone to save them can be forgiven of their sin and made right before God. That's what this new covenant opens up the opportunity for. And so for you and I, we need to come to a place where we recognize our need for Jesus. And so for every person, you need to come to this place in your life where you realize you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. You can't be good enough to de be declared righteous. All the wrong that you've done that God keeps a record of, you can't do enough good to, to push that out of the way. You've sinned against God and you will be judged according to your sins, the Bible says. But if you're willing to come to Jesus today in faith and repentance and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I believe that he died for my sins, and I'm asking God to save me and forgive me of my sins. You can be saved just like that if you really believe that. That's called being saved or born again. It's a one-time deal where you put your faith and trust in Christ. And when you do that, the Bible says that you are adopted into the family of God and are made a child of God. So most important thing in all of the world, Jesus said this, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The most important thing in the world is that you know for sure that you're saved. Most important thing for Dave Bohr in Cambodia is not that he gets a building with a roof over it. It's that people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are born again. Most important thing in all the world. So you need to be saved if you haven't yet already. But then the question comes in, okay, well, well how do we get saved? How did Abraham get saved? Was Abraham saved because he got circumcised? When we talk about the old covenant that they were under before, now you and I are under the New Testament or New Covenant where God has opened up the ability to become a child of his based on our faith in Jesus Christ to save us. Abraham lived under the old covenant or the Old Testament. Now, God made an agreement with Abraham that he called the Abrahamic Covenant. God promised to give Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And again, uh, if you're going to be with us through this study of Romans, you need to remember the Abrahamic Covenant because it's going to pop up uh, ever so often uh, in our studies here together. God says, Abraham, I need you to get up and go because I'm going to give you a land. Anywhere your foot treads is going to be yours. I'm going to give you a child that from your seed will come a great nation. And from you, I'm going to give you a blessing that in you will all the, the nations of the world be blessed. That's called the Abraham. I today are blessed because of Abraham's faith. So first of all, God gave them a land. It's the nation of Israel that we see today. 
this is why, again, this is not a political statement. This is a biblical statement. That strip of land belongs to Israel. It doesn't belong to Palestine. We can't, we can't divvy it up and say, we'll just give the Palestinians half and we'll give the Israelites half and call it good. God gave them that land, and we don't have the ability to redistribute it on God's behalf. So, uh, and, and again, the Bible says anybody who will be a friend of Israel will be a friend of God. So we're 100% on Israel's side when it comes to political things. Uh, that's not a political statement. That's a biblical statement. So, uh, again, land. And then God says, I'm going to give you a seed and your seed is going to be like the stars in the sky. You won't be able to number these people. And so Jews today come from Abraham and this promise that God made to Abraham. Lastly, God promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed by Abraham. This was a prophecy that Jesus would be born from Abraham's seed. So you and I are here today singing about the love of Jesus, uh, the greatness of God, God's amazing grace because of the blessing that came from Abraham. And that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So we find ourselves 12 chapters into the Bible and already God has set the stage for the rest of eternity from just this one promise that he made with Abraham. That's why this is such a big deal. So when Paul says to the Jews who are at the church at Rome, hey guys, Abraham, Abraham was also saved by faith. These guys perk up and listen because like Abraham is like top notch. He's top tier. When it comes to Jews, Abraham was at the top and David probably would have been an incredibly close second. So he evokes both of those names in this. So the question comes then, okay, well, Abraham has this promise from God that we call a covenant. Then the covenant later would have certain conditions that got applied to it. One of those was uh, the covenant uh, sign of circumcision. So a later requirement of the covenant, chapter 12, we see the Abrahamic covenant, these verses are in your notes. Genesis 17, verse number 10 says, this shall be my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. That shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that's born in the house or born with money, every stranger which is not of thy seed. He that's born of thy house and he that's bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Get this, and the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So bottom line, this is such a big deal to God that he says, hey, if you don't circumcise your children or you yourself are not circumcised, you're no longer my people. This is a picture that you ascribe to my covenant. You agree that you belong to me and I belong to you by this symbol of circumcision that you have. Now, a couple of things with this. First of all, this was done under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. Some people have tried to draw the, the line between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament, get this, infant baptism. That baptizing babies is your way of showing that your children will be a part of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Just as circumcision was a picture of the old covenant, baptism of babies is a picture of the new covenant. Now, hold on for just a second. Hear me out, okay? Logically, that makes sense. Well, I could see where you would come away with that, right? Baptize a baby, kind of the same thing as circumcising on the eighth day of a baby. Old covenant, new covenant, I get that. The problem with it, there's no scriptural basis for it whatsoever. You can't find a single place in all the Bible where anybody was baptizing babies, ever, not one single time. It's a good thought. Logically, it makes sense. There's one passage in Colossians that, that, that one could maybe draw a line but doesn't exist anywhere else in Scripture, and really the, the line isn't really clear. It's, it's a big jump, and 
if we really begin to look at things like infant baptism, we find that it wasn't always a sign of the, the new covenant. It was actually a sign of baptismal regeneration. So I'm going to give you guys a really quick lesson on church history. I love church history. If you want to talk about it later, we can. But basically, Jesus started one church. That's it. He called uh, apostles. Uh, that was laying the foundation of the church. The church was empowered, as we know it, on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached. Uh, 2,000 people got saved, baptized, added to the church, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church took off. And it is what we know of as today of the local church. Jesus started one church. How did we wind up with, with like 2,500 different types of churches? How do we even take like Baptist churches and have like 85 different types of Baptist churches? The answer to that question is Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine always either unites or divides. And so what makes us different than a Methodist church? Bible doctrine. What makes us different than an Episcopal church? Bible doctrine. What makes us different than Lutherans? Bible doctrine. What makes us different than Jehovah's Witnesses? Bible doctrine. What do you believe about the Bible? That's why doctrine is super important. So Jesus started one church and then around probably 200 A.D., second century or so, we find a deviation from clear scriptural teachings in the idea of what saves one. And the idea came across that baptism was the thing that washed sins away. And so this idea of baptismal regeneration, if you want to write that out in your notes there, just study out and go down a rabbit hole one day, study out baptismal regeneration is the idea of this. You're not born again by Jesus Christ and, and faith in him. You're born again by your baptism. That's a doctrinal error. And here's the thing that we have to be really careful with. Doctrinal error never stops with one. It's kind of a slippery slope. That once you start going, it's very difficult to stop it. So baptismal regeneration got uh, this idea that people got saved through baptism. Well, then people wanted their kids to get saved, so they started baptizing their kids so that their kids could get saved before they had the opportunity to even understand the gospel, even infant baptism. So around 200 AD, we see a group of people who say, hey, you guys aren't Bible-believing Christians anymore. Like, you're not part of us anymore. And we see a split in the church, the church that Jesus started, and then doctrinal error. You could call it a fork if you wanted to. That fork would later go on to, to further widen the gap based on church governance and, and politics and, and polity of the church and uh, hierarchy uh, in church leadership and things along those lines until we get to about 300 AD or so, and we find uh, the uh, Emperor Constantine takes over this split and creates, anybody want to guess, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And so then we have two separate churches that run parallel all throughout church history. One is distinct from the other, though. It's important to understand that. Then you get to like the Protestant Reformation, you have a further fork off of the fork of Catholicism into Protestantism, but you still have this church over here, the church that Jesus started, right? This is Bible-believing Christians throughout all of church history, the last 2,000 years, would identify with the church that Jesus started. We're not a break off of anybody else. We're not a uh, we're not Protestants in the fact that we came out of the Catholic Church. We've always been against Catholicism as Bible believing Christians because it represents doctrinal error. Somebody once said, "Well, our ch church can't be a hundred percent right when it comes to doctrine, can it?" And my answer to that was, "Show me where we're wrong, so that we can make it right." Because we have to be 100% gun barrel straight when it comes to the Bible. If you show me an area where we're off in the Bible, by all means, I want to correct that because we must follow the Bible for all matters of faith and practice. Even things like giving to missions, there's a biblical precedent of that in the book of Philippians where the church at Philippi actually did that for, for Paul. That's the precedent that we follow. It wasn't my idea. Uh, it, it, was, it was God's idea through Scripture. So again, 
when we take a look at like how was Abraham saved, some people will say that Abraham was saved because he got circumcised. His circumcision was an act of faith that he performed. And so, but circumcision was just a Jewish practice to show that you belong to God and to his covenant people. So again, it was an outward sign of an obedience to this covenant. So did circumcision save Abraham? That was the argument that, well, circumcision proves that you're really serious about your faith. Last week, we had four people that got baptized. Uh, all four of those got baptized, not to be saved, but because they had already been saved. Uh, we saw their video. And again, that's one of the reasons why we have a public profession of their faith, where they share with you, here's how I got saved, and I'm coming today to be baptized, not to be saved, but because I've already been saved. Circumcision was just a picture that we ascribe to this covenant uh, that God has already created. And so we see in verse number three, this is just review for us. Abraham was justified or declared righteous by faith. Abraham's sin was washed away because he believed God's word. You're born again. You were saved, justified, declared righteous based on your faith. Oftentimes in talking to people, I'll say, hey, if you die today, you're 100% sure you go to heaven. Oh, yeah, I'm guaranteed I'm going to heaven. Based on what? Well, I got baptized when I was 14. Well, tell me about when you got saved. Well, I got saved when I got baptized. Hmm. Let's talk through the gospel. Because no one ever got saved from being baptized. No one ever got saved, declared righteous by being circumcised. So was Abraham justified by faith? You might say, well, isn't it the same thing? No, it's not. Did Abraham have faith in God and then was circumcised? Or was Abraham circumcised and that gave him faith in God? You might say, well, it's the same thing. Oh, no, 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 no. Very different. Because one says... I'll do the work, and then God declares me righteous based on the work. The other one says, God's already done all the work. I just have to have faith in God's work. Huge difference. And so uh, the two things are not the same. And so when people say, well, I got baptized and that saved me. No, you didn't. Uh, again, we get saved, and then we get baptized. It's not the other way around. Well, it doesn't matter. Oh, it matters a, a ton. Because is my faith in circumcision, or is my faith in God? Is my faith in baptism or is my faith in God? Is my faith in my church membership or is my faith in God? It matters supremely. So Jewish tradition taught that no circumcised Jew could actually go to hell. Uh, the Jalkut Rubim taught that, no, that circumcision saves from hell. Uh, the Midrash Milam says that God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Uh, the book Akadath Jizika taught that Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised in Israelite should enter there. So according to Jewish tradition, Abraham's sitting outside of hell and he sees a circumcised Jew come and he's just like, oh, you can't go, you got to go back to heaven, get, get out of here. And so that was their tradition. So you, you find this was a really big deal to them, super big deal, uh, because to them, circumcision equaled salvation. And so this became such a big deal that it, it bled over into the New Testament church. And so we find this in Acts chapter 15, verse number 5. Where there rose up a certain sect of Pharisees which believed. Now, pause for just a second. This is crazy because when you read through the Gospels, Pharisees were people who hated Jesus Christ. They, they called, called him blasphemous. They were instrumental in actually getting Jesus crucified. But when we fast forward to Acts chapter 15, there's, there's Pharisees that actually got saved. These Pharisees who believed, but here's what they said. Acts chapter 15, verse number 5, 
that it's needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Hey, we believe in Jesus. We've been saved, but you guys also need to get circumcised. Uh, yeah, I'm not a Jew. doesn't matter you're not a Jew. Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read God's commandment to Moses? Have, haven't you read? You need to be circumcised. And so it caused a little bit of division, as you can imagine. These Jews who for their entire existence have been told that circumcision is the key to eternal life now are being faced with the idea that, no, your circumcision doesn't save you, Jesus does. And they're just like, mm, how about both? Uh, it's just like, no, you can't have it both ways. And so this false doctrine of, of salvation via circumcision uh, infected the churches in the Galatian region. The churches in the Galatian region bought into this false gospel, so Paul rebuked them. So the book of Galatians is written to a group of churches. The majority of the epistles are written to an individual or an individual church. Uh, the book of Galatians was written to the churches in the Galatian region, probably somewhere between five to seven churches that it was written to by Paul. Galatians is also unique in the fact that every other epistle that Paul writes, it's always very kind opening. Uh, for example, grace and peace be unto you from our God and our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, to, to the church. He even writes to the church at Corinth with kind words before he pulls out a flamethrower and torches them for two whole books, right? He was kind to them. Book of Galatians, no kind greeting, just down to brass tacks. You have believed a false gospel. Take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 6 is in your notes here. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. No kind words there. Like Paul's like, I am shocked that you would leave the pure gospel of Jesus and follow after a fake gospel that would cause you to be stuck in old covenant rituals for your salvation. He goes on in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 3. Now, this is interesting. Paul, we had several men that he was raising up to be pastors of these New Testament churches. Uh, these were men that we, he would consider protégés or leaders that he was raising up by his own hand. Uh, we are able to read some of Paul's mail to these guys and the fact that they're part of our scripture. First and Second Timothy were written to uh, a young pastor that Paul tells him how to be a good pastor and how to identify and ordain other pastors as well. He writes to a man by the name of Titus in the book of Titus. Titus is a young pastor as well. He says, hey Titus, I left you in the city of Crete because I want you to go around to all the cities in that region and I want you to ordain pastors in every city, and here's the qualifications for those pastors and what they look like. Interesting thing here. Timothy, his dad was a Greek non-believer. His mom was a Jewish Christian. And so Timothy is kind of stuck with a, a non-Jew dad and a Jewish mom. Titus was 100% non-Jew, 100% Gentile, 100% Greek. And so Paul's kind of left in this, uh, you know, difficult position. He has a Jewish boy that he's helping to lead the New Testament church who hasn't been circumcised because his dad wasn't circumcised. And again, if you remember, according to the Old Covenant, if your dad wasn't circumcised, your whole family, okay, Timothy, he's half Jew, but he's never been circumcised. It's going to cause harm for the gospel. He told Timothy, hey, Timothy, we're just going to get you circumcised so that this isn't an issue going forward. And so there was a little bit of, uh, you could kind of understand Paul's uh, reluctance to do that, but at the end of the day, he said, hey, I just want the gospel to go forward. Let's just go ahead and get this over with, Timothy. But then they come to Titus. Titus has zero Jewish blood. And they're like, oh, Titus, you need to be circumcised too. And Paul's like, no, I'm putting my foot down here. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 3. 
But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which have, we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. Hey, there were fake Christians who came into the church uh, to check us out and to kind of take names and figure out who had been circumcised and who wouldn't. And you guys tried to compel Titus to be circumcised. Come on. Dude, it's totally a, a Greek. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16, knowing the man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified, declared righteous by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you so foolish. Paul's faith in the Spirit, but now you want to keep your salvation by doing good works or ritualistic works? He's like, it doesn't work that way. But Paul writes something really interesting in the, the first verse there. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Later in, in Galatians, Paul would say, You had run well, who hath hindered you? Hey, who are these people that's putting this garbage in your head? It's tough to watch as a pastor when people come to faith in Christ and they're really fired up about their faith and then it kind of tapers off in a couple of weeks. It's hard to watch because you see a fire of a zeal and excitement. Man, I'm so fired up that I've been saved. I'm so excited that I've been born again. I love this new faith that I have. Man, God's given me a new lease on life. And Man, I can't wait to live this life. And then like four weeks later, the FBI can't find these people. And they're just like, oh, yeah, I just, I just figured out it's not for me. My question to all that is, who told you that? What happened? And oftentimes I've been able to have conversations and dialogue with people. I was like, well, I told my parents. My parents weren't really happy about the decision I made. Or I told my girlfriend. She was like, what does this mean for us? And I was like, well, it means you got to be a Christian or we got to break up. And she was really upset about that. And so, like, it was, it was really hard for me. It's just like, oh, man. So here in this case here, these people who had been saved had come across this idea that everybody needed to be circumcised now. And Paul's like, nope, not the case at all. And so... We look at that and we say, okay, that was kind of a New Testament problem, and it was for the first century church. And so while salvation by circumcision is nearly universally rejected now, others still cling to other religious works required to save. And so I don't think you'd be, you could find a church out there that believes that the circumcision of males on the eighth day actually provides salvation to a family. I don't think you'd find anybody out there that would still circumcise for religious purposes in a New Testament church. I think all of us have kind of gotten past that. But are there churches out there who still believe that you have to do certain things in order to be saved? Absolutely, unfortunately. And so, we, again, here now we, we've traded the, the work or ritual of, of uh, circumcision and traded it maybe for the ritual of baptism or the ritual of communion or the ritual of uh, church attendance. And we say that these things now save. For example, according to, to Catholicism, baptism is required to begin the process of being saved, and one cannot be saved apart from baptism. And he said, well, why no Catholics and they don't believe that? Hey, I'm just telling you what Catholic Church catechism says. You can actually buy at Barnes & Noble the catechism of the Catholic Church. It's about this thick. It's their doctrinal statement, like signed off by the Pope himself. This is what we believe. He said, well, Catholics don't believe that. I've read the catechism, and that's what it says. And so, again, according to their statement of faith, holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. 
the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we're freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. Baptism is the source of that new life in Christ from which the entire Christian life springs. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. There's no footnote, there's no verse for that because it's not a true statement. By baptism are all sins forgiven, not a true statement. Original sin and all personal sins as well as all punishment for sin. So according to to Catholicism, baptism is what makes you acceptable to God and what cleanses you from sin. The problem with that is there's no biblical basis for that. Again, tradition goes back to the washing away of original sin, baptizing babies, uh, things along those lines was one of the reasons why the church split and forked in the beginning. And so the issue with this is, is that baptism never saved anyone. Abraham wasn't saved by his circumcision. Abraham was saved because he believed God. You and I aren't saved because we do some religious act. And notice, again, this is the beginning of the sacraments. Uh, not, not only do you have to be baptized, you also have to attend Mass. You also have to receive communion. You also have to go to confession. You also have to, to be married in the church. You also have to receive last rites before you die. And after all this, that may not be good enough to get you to heaven. You might have to go to purgatory to be cleansed for a certain period of time before you can make it to heaven so that you can pay for your sins in purgatory before you actually go to heaven. All again, this is wildly unbiblical. All this is based on tradition. And the problem with, with Catholicism, one of the, the 10,000 reasons that I have, is that for Catholicism, the Bible and church tradition are on equal footing. They're exactly the same. And so, well, this is what the church says. It doesn't matter that we can't find that in the Bible. This is what the church has always believed. Problematic. It doesn't work that way. So, uh, again, we have to go back to the Bible as our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. And so, again, uh, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, baptism not only purifies from sins, but also makes the neophyte, the one who's been baptized, a new creature, an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. So baptism purifies from sin, not the blood of Christ. With respect to children who have died without baptism, the liturgy of the church invites us to trust in God's mercy and pray for their salvation. Allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. So for us as Bible-believing Christians, we would say that we are pro-life because the Bible's pro-life. Life begins at conception. God is the creator and sustainer of all life. You and I don't have the right to take, take life. That's not a political statement. That's not choosing a political party. That's just agreeing with what the Bible says. The Bible is pro-life. Simple as that. I'll go so far as to say this. You cannot be a Bible-believing Christian if you are not pro-life. You can be a Christian. You can accept Christ as Savior, but you can't say that you believe the Bible because that's just the clear teachings of Scripture. So the Catholics would also agree that they are pro-life, but for a different reason, not because they value life and life begins at conception and God has a purpose for everything, but because they believe that every aborted child will automatically go to hell. And so for that reason, they stand vehemently against abortion because they believe that all aborted children go to hell because they haven't had the opportunity to be baptized problematic because, again, God doesn't send kids to hell. Um, that's just, a, we find that in Scripture. David, when he loses his son, says, I can't go to, to him, but I can, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him one day, saying that David knew that his child was in heaven. So, again, we're going to talk about that later. We can talk about that offline, but here's the idea. 
baptism never saved anybody. It doesn't wash anything away. Look, if you, uh, depending on what time of year you go to the Alamona Beach Park to get baptized, you'll probably come out of the water with more on you than you went in with, depending on uh, how clean the water is. It didn't wash anything away. The idea that water could somehow cover our sins is, is foolishness. Only the blood of Christ could cover our sins. Again, when you look through the entire Bible, all the way back to the book of Exodus, what could cause the death angel to pass over people's homes? Blood. It's the only thing that could cover sin. And so, again, it goes on. I don't want to belabor this, but I want to be really clear. In short, the Catholic uh, Church teaches that salvation is a gift from God, and that the normative way to receive that gift is through the seven sacraments beginning with baptism. Sacraments are a sensible sign that Jesus Christ instituted to confer grace. Here's the problem with that. To be able to do works to receive grace is the invalidation of grace. The Bible says, whatever is grace, or grace because it's works. When grace is added to, to works, it's no longer works, it's grace. And so if I have to work to receive God's grace, then I'm not really receiving God's grace, I'm receiving my works. And again, verse number four or five in our text, Romans chapter four, says that to him that worketh, he doesn't receive a reward, he receives more debt. And so whenever you try to work for your salvation, you're just digging a deeper hole. You're not actually getting out of that hole. And so, again, less people think that this is just something like Trent, which was back in the 1500s. The Catholic Church determined if anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is confirmed in baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted or even asserts that the whole of that which is true and proper nature of sin is not taken away. Let him be anathema. That word means cursed and cast into hell. If you reject the idea that we receive grace, God's grace by baptism, if you reject that, let you be cursed and cast into hell. That's how strongly they believe that. Now, again, you might say, well, I know somebody who's a Catholic and they don't believe that. Then they don't believe Catholic doctrine. But this is what the Catholic Church teaches. This is what they believe. Uh, This is their statement of faith that they have. I met with a man several years ago, and he began to, he claimed to be Catholic, and we began to talk through Catholic doctrine. He was like, well, I don't believe that. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe you can be saved by baptism. I don't believe the sacrament saves. I believe faith in Christ alone. Um, But I don't believe that you and I can just be saved because we put our faith in Jesus. I believe that we have to do things to prove that we're really serious about it. And I said, let me stop you right here. First of all, you're not a Catholic because the things that you're saying don't align with Catholic doctrine. The Catholic Church would reject you as a Catholic. The things that you're saying don't align with Scripture either. And Jesus Christ would reject you because you've rejected Him. And so, like, you've got your own religion going on where you've taken bits and pieces of this, mashed it together to create your own belief system. But you're not a Catholic and you're not a Christian. You're just kind of like doing your own thing. And But what you're going to get from that is what every other sinner gets who rejects Christ. You're going to get God's wrath. And so, again, I'm not, I'm not against Catholics per se, person as a person. I'm against false religion that sends people to hell. And again, my, my enemy is not a Catholic or someone who believes in Catholicism. My enemy is not a Jehovah's Witness. My enemy is the devil who is a perpetrator of lies that sends people to hell. So, again, we need to be really careful of that because um, from time to time we'll see people out on the sidewalk with their, their, their uh, briefcases going house to house. You'll see people on the street corner with their watchtower magazines out and stuff like that. We don't honk at those people and, and shout at them down or mock them or make fun of them. They believed a lie. The Bible says that Satan has deceived them so that they can't see the light of the glorious gospel. We should pray for them. We shouldn't mock them and make fun of them and put them down. They're not our enemy. The devil is. So... Again, how is Abraham uh, justified? 
Well, those who falsely believe in salvation by works, the power lies in the ritual, not the act, and not in faith, and certainly not in the, in the God of all faith. Again, the Jews were believing in circumcision to, to save them. Well, their faith wasn't in God. Their faith wasn't in God's word or God's promises. Their faith was in the ritual. Circumcision will save. And Paul blows that completely and totally out of the water because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Take a look at verse number 11 in our text. And he received the sign of circumcision. Okay, Abraham got circumcised. A seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Okay, stop. Verse number 11. He got circumcised as a seal of his faith, which he had before he was circumcised. So again, order of events, timeline, really important. Faith, circumcision. Not circumcision than faith. Definitely not circumcision righteousness than faith. He already had faith, he was declared righteous, and then he was circumcised. The order of events is critical because with one, faith in Christ is enough. With the other, your works are necessary to save you from your sin. So, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Get this. Abraham's going to be the father of all that believe, though they be not circumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So now Abraham is not just the father of all Jews in the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Abraham is now the father of the New Covenant to all those who have not been circumcised but believe. And so you and I that are Gentiles can say, our father Abraham. Not because we're Jewish, but because Abraham was justified, declared righteous by faith. You and I are also declared righteous by faith. Verse number 12, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, us, non-Jews, but who also walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, get this, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So again, the timeline super important. Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old, and Ishmael was 13 years old. We won't take time to read it. Genesis chapter 17 is in your notes there. Verse number 23 tells us that he took his son Ishmael, who was 13, while Abraham was 99, and he circumcised himself, and he circumcised his son. Now, next, we see that Abraham was declared righteous before Ishmael was even born. Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted unto him for righteousness. So Abraham got saved. Abraham was justified. Abraham was declared righteous. Abraham was forgiven of his sins in Genesis 15, 6. And then we see in Genesis 16, 16, Abraham was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abraham. So Abraham got saved, justified, then Ishmael is born, and then 13 years later, he actually gets immediately after he got Hagar pregnant, nine months there, let's just say a year maybe, 14 years later, he's declared, 14 years, he's declared righteous, and then 14 years later, he gets circumcised. So the timeline there is super important because Paul's making the case here, Abraham was not justified. He wasn't saved because he got circumcised. He was saved because he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so Abraham was justified by faith. Circumcision was simply an act of his faith. So, 
what does this mean for us? <laughs> We're not Jews. Some of you might not have even known before today that Abraham was your father. What does this mean for us? Well, for those of us that are in the New Covenant, New Testament Christians, we're justified by faith. You're saved by your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, period. Baptism, communion, church attendance, good works, generosity are simply an act of our faith. Again, I didn't have to come to church today. I get to come to church today. I didn't have to sing songs. I get to sing songs. I don't have to talk and fellowship with other Christians. I get to fellowship with other Christians. I don't have to be a part of the body of Christ. I get to be a part of the body of Christ. I don't have to give to create a, to put a roof on a church building in Cambodia. I get to be a part of that. Like, I'm going to get to heaven saved. Like, sign me a favor with God that maybe I'll get to go to heaven one day. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we're not having a regular church service. We're going out to our community to service. If you notice all of the uh, fine, uh, un- authorized artwork around our area, also known as graffiti. Uh, we're going to take care of all of that tonight. We're going to pull weeds. We're going to sweep curbs. We're going to make our community a better place. Not because we hope to garner favor with God that maybe God will be gracious or maybe God will uh, turn a blind eye to our sin. No, no, no. We're doing this for our community because we've already received God's grace. And God didn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He looked it dead in the eye and he conquered it with the blood of his son. And he wiped it away as if it never happened. That's why we get the opportunity to serve tonight. So that we can do good works where we might glo- people might see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven is what Jesus said for us to do. So we don't do good stuff to be saved. We do good not to be saved, but because we are saved. Bottom line. Here's the beautiful thing about Abraham's story. I don't have time to fully develop it this morning, but I just want to give you this nugget before we uh, close. When we talk about the faith of Abraham here, Abraham was justified by faith. If you were to turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter number 11, we sometimes refer to it as the hall of faith. Great Christians throughout all the Bible who stood on faith. Abraham is there. Hall of faith. It's interesting that his faith is described here. His faith is described in Hebrews. In Hebrews, get this, it says that God made him a promise and he staggered not at the promise of God. Kind of interesting if you know the story of Abraham. Because God told Abraham, just to give you a little quick uh, overview of this, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land seed blessing. Abraham's like, I'm really old. My wife isn't cranking out kids. She's barren. Uh, So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Him and his wife agreed. Take Hagar, my handmaiden, have a kid with her, and maybe God will use that to, uh, to bless your nation. And so they sinned against God. He has an illegitimate child with Hagar. His name is Ishmael. The Ishmaelites turn into being the Muslims of the Middle East. And to this day, Jews and Muslims don't get along, and that goes back to Abraham's sin. I mean, we don't talk about it on the scale of sin. It's like colossal sin. But what has God said? Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. It's just like, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't seem very honest, does it? It seems like a uh, revisionist history. Like, hey, did we forget the whole part, like, with, with Ishmael and Hagar? Like, we're still dealing with the fallout of that today. Like, how did God just forget that? Important to understand. God didn't forget it. God saw Abraham's faith, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God took Abraham's sin and he cleansed it as if it never happened and Abraham was declared righteous. Well, what about his sin? Oh, it was covered by the blood of Christ. Well, th- why doesn't God bring that up? Because God took his sin, he cast it as far as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. 
See, again, we have this idea that God, after we've been saved, is still keeping account of all of our sin. He's not. He's forgiven it. And so even colossal sin like Abraham had, God can still say he staggered not at the promise. He believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's the grace of God. You think like, oh, Abraham got circumcised and so now God doesn't remember his sin anymore. Paul's like, that's preposterous. How in the world could circumcision save anybody? No, no, no. It was Abraham's faith that declared him righteous. Most important thing in the world, you might be sitting here today saying like, I don't know that my sin is covered. Jesus is enough. Church attendance will not save you. Baptism will not save you. This church cannot save you. I'll even give you this as a parting nugget today. Any church that claims to be the only church that can get you to heaven is a cult. Again, Catholicism says baptism will save you. Oh, not the baptism like we did last week for believers. It has to be baptism through the Catholic Church. It's the only way that you can actually be saved. Cult. Mormons would say, you need to be baptized, but it has to be in a church that has restored the gospel. And the only church in the world that's restored the gospel is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So you can't be saved and go to heaven unless you're baptized in our church. Cult. Any church that claims to be the only way to heaven is a cult because Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And so this church even facilitates your journey to help you find Jesus. This church can't take you to heaven. can't. This church isn't the only church that preaches the gospel. Again, the Bible has the final say. So if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, today's your opportunity. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. I promise you, you will never regret it. For those of us that are saved, have you been living a life of gratitude for all that you've been given? Or are you just like, oh, I got my ticket punched to heaven, I think I'm good. Oh, no, 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 no. Now the Bible says you and I have been foreordained to good works that we should walk therein. Now that we've been saved, now that we've received this from God, we get to live a life that pleases our Father. Let's do that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.